I'm Henry Griffin, filmmaker and professor at UNO, and I'm talking to my friend Jonathan Freilich, a composer, musician, film person, and we're here to talk about Francis Coppola's Tetra. <laughs> Jonathan, just like Woman in the Dunes, you picked Tetra. It was on your short list of movies you totally wanted to talk about. Why did you pick this movie? I don't know if it's because I have a really, a real love for very, um, very, uh, very clear, very clear black and white photography, but uh, maybe that's what it is. No, I I like Tetro because I think Tetro is it looks beautiful. It's it, it really tries to tackle, get to the bottom of a really complicated kind of relationship idea. Although it flips into very psychological areas, like you can't. It's not really, you know, what what parts of it are real and what parts are of it aren't, and it, it's loaded with beautiful people and beautiful photography and also it's i like the i like the i like the reflexive nature of it I, and i always like that in films but you know it's very reflexive it has it has uh, plenty of what you would what you you know play within a play type stuff and film within a film type stuff so uh for me that's those are exciting elements you know in other words it's watching itself i think that's kind of interesting it's good to know. There's probably two ways to characterize the movie to people who are listening to this who don't know it. One is that it's a film made by Francis Coppola late in his career, just a couple of years ago. Um, and Francis Coppola, who was a multiple Oscar winner as a screenwriter, director, and producer, is famous for doing wildly successful and important movies like The Godfather, Godfather 2, uh, The Conversation, and Apocalypse Now. Then also movies that are wild artistic gambles that are failures, like uh, One from the Heart is probably the most famous one. Um, and then later in his career, he started to make personal films, and that's what this is one of. And all of his films are about family. He's from an artistic family that's multi-generational, and so this happens to be a movie that it was his first original screenplay since The Conversation, so almost 40 years, and uh, or 35 years. And it is loosely put about a young man, Benny, who's like, it's the week he turns 18, and he works on a cruise ship, and he has shore leave in Buenos Aires, and he looks up his long-lost brother, goes by the name of Tetro, which is Italian for gloomy. <laughs> anyway, Tetro is working at, in the theater community of Buenos Aires in lighting, although he's secretly a writer. And so while... His older brother doesn't want anything to do with his younger brother. Like Tetra doesn't want anything to do with Benny and pushes him away. Benny finds a way into his brother's life by ingratiating himself to his girlfriend and to the other people in his community. And then when he discovers that his brother has secretly been writing a play that he wouldn't let anybody read, he finishes the play and submits it and uh, gets attention for it, which attracts unwanted attention to Tetra, who has a deep secret. And in particular their unintended collaboration on this play attracts uh, the leading critic of Buenos Aires, who's played by Carmen Mara, and it's, her name is Alone. Alone. <laughs> and then this leads to the reason that Tetro doesn't want anything to do with his younger brother, right. which I don't know if we should say it or not. Um, right. Well, we, we, don't, we, we don't need to. I mean, we could. Or we, we could do a spoiler alert when it has to come up in our conversation. Okay, that sounds good. Um, but so just to give you one more thing to think about, uh, Coppola is one of those people who is a, really a born filmmaker. His training was in theater originally, but has been enormously successful at cinema from a very young age and um, has made projects for other people. He's very good at adaptation. Mm -hmm. Not just The Godfather. He also made the best John Grisham movie, which is called The Rainmaker. Yeah. Um, but then he makes movies for himself. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the things that he makes for other people are successful. And the things he makes for himself, his sort of art films, if you will, are not always big successes. So later in his career, after having uh, a couple of art, let's call them cinematic troubles in the movie business, he... Um, built his empire, which is in wine and real estate and vacations, and he runs a uh, literary magazine. He does a lot of things. So now his last three movies he makes entirely personally. I'm confident he self-finances them. One was in Romania. This one was in Argentina. The last one he shot on his own land in Napa Valley. He doesn't really want 
he wants to be an independent filmmaker and always has since he started his company, American Zoetrope. So the, one of the things that you have to react to when you watch a movie like this is that it's a personal movie. So, okay. He said so in the extras. By yeah. The way. He said, at this point in my career, I'm financing this with my own money. I can make what I want. Okay. But I would like to go at this. Uh, I, I'm going to advocate going at this uh, two ways because I'm, I'm frequently in this and it's a popular way to go about it. It's uh, what I'm about to give is an unpopular way to go about it. But I think that it's really important, especially with that much stuff around it to look at the movie in and of itself, separate from whether or not it has to do with Francis Ford Coppola's life or not, and then maybe tie that in. Because otherwise you run a, you know, I mean, for me, I just prefer that. Because I think there's a phenomenological aspect to art, which is the thing that you look, that's what you're really given. The rest of it is a bit of a, you know, of a, of a, of a forensic peep show, you know. So, I mean, and I like the forensic peep show. So I think you did a great job there. Let's go. Let's go around the other way. Or just into the absolutely movie. no. I don't. I'm not interested in decoding the movie. Right? Yeah. You know, he has the famous quote. He said it can. He said uh, about Tetro. He said none of it happened, but all of it's true. He, yeah. So the fact that he has a brother and a father and a daughter and a, you know what I mean, all this other stuff, yeah. doesn't matter as much as the story he was trying to tell. Yeah, which is let's let's look at how incredible that is. So this is a thing that that that, that opens up in, in Buenos Aires, which is which they I've never been to Buenos Aires, but apparently they picked so you know the super the super neighborhood. And it is. It looks like a place you want to hang out. They go by these places, have some, they have, they have drinks and everything. But the characters are immediately very in, intense. You know, you're a very young guy, but he comes across as the first thing is the is the woman playing the Tetro's girlfriend. She's so beautiful that uh, that it's you know you can't really you can't really get off the camera. You know you you can't really stop following the movie for that. And then so. Uh, you know, I just look, I just think the acting is great. And, and, and the thing is, it's very emotional story. You have to follow what the hell is going to go. Why are these people, first thing, why has this such, the, 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 the one theoretically brother is very affable young guy. And the, and the brother is a, is a, you know, is a dark, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, there's an operatic feature, you know, I mean, how much of this does, you know, for me, it's like a lot of watching it is like watching Don Giovanni. But so they threw they threw in all that, which is really fun. You know, they have a father that's going to do a Don Giovanni act, as it turns out at the end, completely. They, you know, they, they run, they run that gambit. But Vincent Gallo is, is amazing. At playing it. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, Vincent Gallo is amazing. He, uh, He's another person who only makes movies and acts in movies, I think, because he wants to. He's not someone... Yeah. He could have a very big career as a film actor if he wanted it. I don't think he does. Um, he <coughs> directs movies intermittently for himself, and a high degree of quality control. His movies are very distinctive. Uh, and he acts for other people only, I think, when he wants to. He's been in an Abel Ferrara movie. He's done a couple of movies here and there. Um, and, uh, you know, it's known that he stepped in because they lost Matt Dillon, who was supposed to play the part. I'm really glad that they lost Matt Dillon. I mean, Matt Dillon, keep in mind, is a figure from Coppola, right? He was in yeah. uh, The Outsiders and Rumblefish and things like that. And so he's somebody who's sort of in that Coppola world. Anyway. I mean, it's funny because you asked the question, you asked already whether, you know, why I would pick this movie and the other movie. And there definitely is a pattern. I mean, they're very, they're very personal. They're, they're not huge commercial movies. And I think I like things that are going to stand out because there are going to have chances taken in them, which there are, you know, there's a lot of. Uh, you know, continuity chances and things like that. I mean, because part, part of the movie, the important thing is that part of the movie ha they has color sequences and it has completely fantastic, you can't tell if they're dream sequences or what that go on with dancers and people being lifted in the air and, and those parts are in color, which is very strange after the intensive black and white, you know. And I saw on the technical end, it's really it's really a joy to watch. It's like they just, they just pull those. That's also something he did in Rumblefish. You know, he did black and white movie with splashes of color, uh -huh. which is you know kind of a classic move. But he's somebody who's yeah. figured out how to do it well. In this case, it wasn't like one little symbol, like a fish or something like that. It was a real motif. Well, I mean, all the artists are so heavily involved in the movie. I mean, if it, according according to the cinematographer, who sounds just a fascinating guy, but he. According to the cinematographer, they've been 
how many years? How many years was the? They, they were in Buenos Aires for like a year and a half. He said eight months of practice shots and stills. Just before they even before they even got to it, and then apparently Walter Murch showed up two weeks into shooting and started mixing and editing. Two weeks into the shoot, and then he stayed. You know, they stayed together doing this for the whole time. The closeness to that project, I, was, I, I love it. There's, there, there's two things I want to say about that. One, you have to be a master filmmaker to do a movie that shoots for that long or that, that occurs for that long. I think about Stanley Kubrick, who would take like a year to make a movie. Yeah. And I think it's not only the ability to keep your budget down, to work with a small crew, so you're not paying about 200 people a day, you're paying maybe 20 people a day. And so you can choose. The money works as long as you're not spending too much on any given time. But also you have to be somebody who commands that kind of respect, right? You know, when Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman, you know, go to London for a year to shoot Eyes Wide Shut, it's because they give a year of their career to work with Stanley Kubrick. Right. So are you going to go to Buenos Aires for eight months? You know, for Francis Coppola, you might. Uh, the other thing I want to say is that um, Coppola is very process-oriented. Uh Famously, he loves rehearsal. He's also somebody who very early on was big at documenting his work. That's why there's so many great movies about the making of his movies and so many great features. He got in on that really early. Um, but because he started in theater, his undergraduate degrees in theater, he uh, wanted to – he loves collaborating. And so he wants to – make a movie out of the ingredients, which is the setting, which is the people. And he loves the process of finding what the movie is. And that's why what you could dismissively call an art movie, you could even more accurately call it an experimental movie because he's trying to find out the movie. Some people go into it and they're trying to make something and they know what they're trying to do. Whereas he knows that he's making a movie, but he doesn't quite know what it's going to be until it's done. And that's a very difficult business model which is why he allows himself to do it the way he wants. And of the three movies he's made in this period of his career, Youth Without Youth, Tetro, and Twixt, uh, you know, I don't know if I know anybody who likes all three of them. They're all sort of acquired tastes in different ways. Mm -hmm. um, I know the cinematographer shot Youth on Youth, too. Yeah, you think about it like, oh, well, he goes to Romania and he finds a Romanian cinematographer, but he works with the composer, Osvaldo... Um, Golachov. Yeah. He's a great composer. That's probably another reason. I'm and he's an Argentinian composer. Yes, Argentinian. And so you think, oh, well, maybe, just maybe, that has something to do with why he goes down there, that the people lead him in different directions. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, that apparently, I mean, when he goes to a place, he likes to work with as many people from there as possible, too. Already, that's really interesting. Like, he brought down the, the, that, the, the two actors, you know, the few actors and the, uh, the cinematographer, but they go down and they're looking to... Once, but we're working with Argentinians the rest of the time. Do you want the craziest piece of trivia I could possibly give you? What's that? I think this was the first film of Alden Ehrenreich, who plays Benny, uh -huh. the, the young guy. Yeah. Uh, he was, I think, 17 or 18 when they made the movie. He was, yeah. Uh, he has since gone on to be successful. He was in the last Coen Brothers movie. Yeah. But he uh, very recently got cast as Han Solo. Oh, is he? He's the young Han He's Solo the in the new Han Star Solo. Wars movies. So you can imagine my shock. When I found out that Francis Coppola was one of the bases for Han Solo. Yeah. That George Lucas was inspired by what a boss Francis Coppola was in the 70s. And so he was like, I want a swashbuckling boss character. And, so, and later, the guy that Coppola casts, not in any sort of family allegory, but a guy he sees uh -huh. as the protagonist of his personal movie yeah. is someone who fulfills that archetype. <laughs> Right. We just don't usually see that kind of connection. What did you think of the script? You're a script writer. What, I mean, you know. I, I, I adore this movie. Yeah. Um, and I liked Youth Without Youth, um, which is a more difficult movie to love. It's a very strange, cryptic movie. Oh. Um, I thought Tetro was, oh, it's, a, it's almost dismissive to call it accessible, right? Because it's a, it's a story, you know, operas often have easy to follow plots. You know, it's yeah. a very simple story, even yeah. though it has a lot of complications in oh, the yeah. background. Like I couldn't completely summarize the plot because it's not only about a young man seeking his long lost older brother and a part of his childhood that he's missing, but it has everything to do with their, what screenwriters call backstory. The fact that their father and uncle had a strained relationship. Right. And so 
this mysterious riddle of a dude, Tetro, has every reason not to trust fathers or brothers or children or anybody. Riddle of a dude, he writes instantly, does his writing backwards, which they find, you know, mirror writing. The mirror, the book in mirror writing. I love it. And, you know, I've seen it three times and I can never remember it, which for me is... Yeah, that's a plus. For me, it's a a compliment. I have the same thing with Jules and Jim. I watch it every time. I can never remember which dude is around at the end. Yeah. So I just keep watching to find out what happens. Yeah. So that's the way with Tetro is that I can never... I always remember the climactic twist of the film, but never all the details. And you always forget... I always forget, like you were talking about color, I always forget that there's like a cameo appearance by the Tales of Hoffman. Yeah. Right. Um, which, there's even a moment of The Shining. There's a lot of references in there. <laughs> but I mean, there's literally a quotation. There's a piece of the film. Yeah. Right. And so you think Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, who made Tales of Hoffman, Red Shoes, make these sort of highly stylized, kind of operatic, um, really artificial movies that are yeah. the favorite films of the last people in the world you'd expect, like Francis. Coppola yeah, or Martin Scorsese. Sure. Right? Even though they don't yeah. generally make films like that. They're highly admired because of like their inventiveness. They're funny. It's funny watching him make movies that have all those references. Like Spielberg, you know, Spielberg does it very easily. Like all these movies with references to everything else in there. I mean, Coppola's movies famously have a lot of opera in them. And they do. Yeah. And it's everywhere. And he's doing opera the whole the whole time. But yeah. Father was an opera composer and all that. But but at the same time, like, you know, it's it's really a different way. And it's and also it's very funny. It's like less comfortable and say, you know, because there's they do do a lot of um, early French New Wave stuff with the shooting in the mirror. Everything's shot in mirrors and they're they're shooting other TV screens and film the shooting of films thing, which is, you know, a heavily good art. Act. We got to we got to shoot the devices that are projecting the films all the time and have have multimedia being shot by media and this this kind of reflexive act. Of course, I love, but he does it in a different way because I think it's it's less. You don't get caught up in so much. If some other directors do that kind of thing, you you're very struck by the by by that as as an idea. Whereas here, it's just going on. But there's a story that delivers the same time. Do you know what I mean? I sort of do. I mean, when you said Spielberg, who again is a is a contemporary of Coppola's, and they were sort of toe to toe for a lot of the seventies. Uh, Steven Spielberg never makes a film without the audience. Yeah, he always factors in the audience yeah. to the experience mm-hmm. of watching the movie. He always thinks about what the audience knows and wants. And he generally figures out a way to give them what they want, even if the subject is uncomfortable, like Schindler's List or Judic or Amistad. He's always there to make an audience satisfied. Yes. So when you say what a personal film is, it's like I don't think Coppola was enormously concerned with that. I think he was really making the movie for himself. And if he made himself happy, then people would like it. Then this is really cool. It actually wasn't what I meant. I'm probably explaining myself badly. What I was explaining was really just his use of of uh, of. I just meant in Spielberg's case, his movies are loaded with references to other movies in an incredible way. Almost all of them are just, you know, these things are going on, and and you don't notice that. You have to. You're like, wait, he just did a whole, and, he, and he's constantly doing that, and and he does it in a very in a very slick way. But in this case, it, it, it's. It's less integrated here. It's, I mean, Coppola made it clearer that those things are in the movie. That there's that there's, like you said, references to Tales of Hoffman, references to all kinds of things in the film. Uh, they're there. They're there a little more starkly. But on the other hand, it's never. It, it's not interruptive of the flow of the story. Like it's not a technology in and of itself. Like I said, is what I meant. You know, like some things you can you can look at it and be like, did you see? Oh, did you see that shot? He had the camera shooting such and such in the you know you can get hung up on the, on the composition of a shot and what what that what that mean, what that means you know the look of a picture what just uh, the technology the technical look of a picture and what that what that means and in this case i don't think you you know even though he has those things in there they don't break you down from the from the movement of the of the of the, of the, of the propulsion of the story the cinematography really is uh distinctive that this romanian cinematographer mihai Malamare Jr. I'm going to give that a try. <laughs> he um, 
not only did he do a couple of movies with Coppola, but then he went on and he worked with Paul Thomas Anderson. He shot The Master. Oh, did he really? Yeah, which was a that's film. an amazing movie. And you know, you think he made these Except movies and he made these movies in digital video, and then he made uh, The Master in sixty five millimeter. So he's pretty great. Not sixty five millimeter, not seventy millimeter. That's the format that they shoot on. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Uh, but it's the same thing you're talking about—the double size. Yeah. Uh, negative for the big images. Okay, so yeah. it's just um, but does that close it going to HD video or not not to film? You got me. I just double checked. I was like, we say seventy millimeter, but sixty five and seventy millimeter are different film formats. And That's so what I thought. There are people who'd be like, if I said seventy, they'd say no, sixty five, okay, and then so. if I say sixty five, they say, what's the difference? I say cut. <laughs> I'm not the guy. But in other, in other words, it's just as much a distinctive and artsy choice to shoot a film in an all but extinct film format, an oversized film format that is, you know, closer to IMAX. Yeah. Anyway, The Master is another fantastic movie yeah. that picks the format of like Lawrence Arabia to do extreme close-ups. Yeah. So it makes everybody's face look like a planet. Mm. But um, it, Coppola really wanted to make the movie in black and white. Um, not, and I don't think it's just so he could add color. I think um, there's no clearer way immediately to make people take your movie seriously than for you to make it in, you know, black and white, like Eli Kazan or like, I don't know. Everybody, yeah, that's everybody. what they said they were they've been looking at. You know, they're looking yeah, you think about Kazan, you think about how, you know, Mike Nichols chose to make uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf in black and white. Like, black and white films in the color era are not cheaper to make. Yeah. As a matter of fact, they're more expensive because you're already sort of abandoning certain... It used to be that you were abandoning certain television markets and they wouldn't play globally because people didn't like black and white movies. And, you know, we've both been around young people who don't like black and white. There's, oh, they don't. You know, there's that. a thing. I I can think of a young person who famously told me, I just don't see in black and white. I can only see in color. Yeah. So the black and white movies were harder. And actually, Coppola does have a quote about that, which he says it's kind of like a, it's a kind of blindness that if you can't really appreciate a movie that's in black and white, you know, you're not, you're really missing out on something. Well, yeah, but I, I think that that's, you know, it's naturally abstract. And we, we get more, as we go, as we're going more forward with technology and everything, we're, 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 everyone wants reproduction of, of things to be more and more realistic. So it, it's just cultural that's going on. And, and as soon as you introduce black and white, it's abstract. It's not, you know, I think that's why they do it. It automatically puts you into another world because it doesn't resemble the world around you. Even in the era that was black and white, I don't know, you were in the era that was black and white. But everything else in the room was in color, right? <laughs> not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure back then. I, 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 England in 1963 was pretty black and white, really. <laughs> A lot of grays. <laughs> but maybe you wore the right colors so that you would look good at black and white shots. You know, I, I mean, you know, famously Alfred Hitchcock said that he shot Psycho in black and white because he didn't want to use... He didn't want red blood, so he used chocolate syrup, you know, uh, for the blood and psycho. Uh, you almost want to say Coppola really wanted to shoot this movie in black and white because Benny wears a crisp white uniform. Okay, he wears yeah, this yeah. faux naval uniform working uh -huh. on a cruise ship. And so he shows up in a dark place in a white outfit. Yeah. You know what I mean? And you can't get more white than in a black and white movie. You can't get, you can't get a clearer sense of contrast or binary or conflict or anything. So I think that's... Um, it's just so lovely. It just makes the film seem more timeless because yeah. even though you can, you know, I don't know, the cars or the hairstyles, you can always, I think this movie will age very well because uh, you won't really be able to fix it in a time and place. It's not of its era the way that you would say that, uh, you know, like Tootsie is a movie that always screams the early 80s. You can just look at it and you can tell yeah. from the styles and the music and everything. Whereas everything about this movie is really sort of removed from it. He's not trying to make something realistic. And again, to go back to the personal thing, a lot of his movies come from personal experiences, personal history, dreams, um, memories. So it, it, it's good that he makes the movie the way he sees it and not the way we want to see it or the way we would sure. see it. Sure. I mean, I think so. But it has so many fun things bound up in it because of that, you know. But, you know, let's, we got to, you got to have a laugh about some things. Alone has a magazine called Parasite. <laughs> <laughs> That's really good. What the, really, yeah. That was the name for a magazine. <laughs> I don't know. I don't even know if this is really worth mentioning, but um, it's like, it's so nice to see Carmen Mara in a film. 
right? She's famous for all of her work with uh, Pedro Almodovar. Mm-hmm. So it's nice to see her there. And then the uncle and father, who appear in flashbacks, are both played by Klaus Maria Brandauer. Yeah. Who is, you know, famous actor who was in, he's famous for his films, Avos Mephisto, but he's also in Out of right. Africa and all sorts of other things. Um, and then in his previous movie, Youth of That Youth, he cast um, Bruno Gans, oh, yeah. right? From Wings of Desire and oh, yeah. all sorts of other things. Uh-huh. So you think, like, they, these, like, enormously important European actors. And Mirabel Verdu, who's the uh, place the girlfriend, uh, is also a Spanish actress. She was in um, Y Tu Mama Tambien yeah. and lots of other things. So I'm just, I think, uh, incredible. Uh, yeah, it's nice to see them. Uh, it's nice to see them in movies. Period. Yeah, absolutely. Because I can't think of a lot of movies she's done in English, and clearly she should be. But I don't know if the parts are there. Yeah, um, well, it was fascinating because the the the. the the interviews with the cinematographer that you hear, here's incidentally, if you're listening to this, the, the one of the most interesting things about this movie is, as Henry said, there's all these, Coppola is very good at documenting the, back, the behind the scenes thing. So there's actually a lot of information out there with the people, but that cinematographer, it's funny because you said that about, the, about, about how difficult it is to shoot black and white because they were so specific, Coppola was so specific about what he wanted. And it, this guy is the kind of cinematographer. It was like, and I'm really inspired by listening to this guy just to, as an artist, just on an artistic level, because whatever the problem is, is he, he keeps saying, well, we did a lot of tests, whatever it was. He's like, I got a, I got, I was walking around with eight film cameras and all these different kinds of film. And it was to solve, they, they were really trying to solve a deep idea they had about the way it should look. You get a guy that was going to really go to bat on how we're going to have digital photography imitate as closely some very particular kinds of black and white photography. So this is, you know, I think the goal ultimately is for cinema to become a personal expression like writing does, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I got nothing but Coppola quotes today, but he has a famous quote that ends Hearts of Darkness in which he said that cinema's Mozart is going to be some little fat girl in Ohio. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that someday someone with a little video camera will be able to do everything they did in Apocalypse Now. Yeah. And we're probably halfway there now from when he said that. Um, so a I writer... Think he, I think he was talking about his daughter. <laughs> did you notice, throw something in from a few seconds ago, that the casting of Maribel Verdu and Vincent Gallo is they're alike. Skin tone, height, movement, style, speed, the way they express themselves. They're a set. Right? Are like, they? Like, yes. Oh. Google, facial expression, all sorts of things. They're a reflection of mm. each other. That's a good point. Um, what Coppola's style is in pre-production and rehearsal is the exhaustion of possibilities, oh. which is something that a writer or a composer or anybody who, or a painter or anybody who works alone can do. They yeah. can try all the different things try out. Everything. They can take yeah. a month. They can take a year. Whereas film, it's very, very difficult to do that. But um, in my uh, film classes, I show a re- I show a documentary about the making of Bram Stoker's Dracula, uh-huh. which was famously directed by uh, Coppola. And um, not only is it about the extended rehearsal process of bringing people up to his land in Napa. And, you know, they do everything. They have equestrian stuff. They, they have Very good musical show. Yeah, dance practice. They have hot air ballooning. They teach poise. They, you know, do all sorts of actor games. But he said that they read the book of Dracula aloud as a table read and then encouraged every actor and everybody there to suggest things that weren't in the script. And so he said that we, we did it and I took everybody's ideas and then I made the script four times as long. And then everybody realized the movie couldn't be that long, and then I could cut it all again. But he didn't—he didn't feel comfortable moving forward until it was all there, all there, you know. Yeah. And um, I, I know one of the dreads and tetras about how Vincent Gallo, who's an actor, who's—it's very—it's a—it's a classic move for film actors or or film directors to be against rehearsal, the actual convention, you know, because film is really about capturing it once. And so there's a certain spontaneity that's really only capable in cinema because in the theater, short of an improv show, you don't get that level of like newness. Everything that you see on stage in a play is something that has been arrived at through memorization and rehearsal as opposed to, you know, uh, there's a kind of emotionally based or even method acting that can be people who just want to do the scene. They may memorize the script, but they only want to do it with the other person once. They want to really punch somebody they want to really do the thing 
you know, Brando at the end of his career was the guy who worked exclusively with cue cards and earpieces. He was so good he could just repeat something that was said in his ear and make it sound like Brando. But you think that's what they're going for. Whereas Coppola disabuses actors and all sorts of other people of that notion and says, let's all try everything that you can do. So you have to be not only that kind of nurturing paternal force, which he is, but also someone who inspires the confidence so that people do their best work by trying everything out. Try everything out. Try everything. And I, I really, I mean, I'm into this music and everything. But, yeah, it's interesting. There's another thing you brought up there that was something. We, we were talking the other day about uh, Cassavetti's about women, women on, woman on the age uh, on the age of nervous breakdown, uh, which is woman under the influence. I'm sorry, that's okay. There's the uh, we had Almodovar on the brain. I uh, yeah, we did. So, <laughs> okay. under, but a woman under the influence. Woman under the influence, right? which is an incredible acting job. And of course, he said uh, he didn't, but he didn't know that at the time. But he said uh, it turns out it wasn't. There's no improv at all, and then the, the Casavetti's, of course, drove people. Insane. It was very particular that things had that things had to go on. So it's similar, but I think what's interesting about that is I think people are are mis- a lot of people in the acting world are largely mistaken about in the film the film thing because clearly those are those are great examples of if you drive people with rehearsal and severe intensity, you actually can get back to something that is maybe even more intense. Well, yeah, you know, <laughs> um, just, yeah. I mean, obviously, it, Gina, you know, Gina Rowland's case, it's like, yeah. it was an intense performance, you know. But you think, like, Mike Lee, who's a director we will eventually talk about, yeah. is a guy who builds his movies out of rehearsals, where he casts the movie before he writes it. Yeah. He gets all the actors together, and they do long-form improvisations and rehearsals based on character ideas, mm-hmm. and they come up with plots and situations. And then after six to eight weeks of this, he dismisses the actors and then writes the script. And they come back, and they make these movies that feel extraordinarily real. But there's no improvisation there either, uh-huh. right? Yeah. Or the before movies that Richard Linklater makes with uh, Ethan Hawke and Joey Delpy before Sunrise, Sunset, and Midnight. Now, the second and third movies of the bunch were co-written by all three of them, the director and the two lead actors. They wrote these movies together about the characters that they played. Mm -hmm. And so people assume that they're improvising because they're like, well, you're actors. They're like, no, we're all writers. We all got (laughs) together and wrote these. But um, it's kind of a compliment to acting, but it seems to be made up on the spot. Yeah, that it seems to be just. Yeah, well, if you, they're, yeah. they're great. You know, I mean, how do you how do you regenerate? I mean, I, I understand it from music all the time. We have to regenerate the feeling of newness. Whenever somebody hears the piece again, you're gonna do it again. Okay, so we have to somehow come up with a. A, 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 a place where what you're about to see, even though we all know it incredibly well, and I know it, we have to come to some understanding here that we have no idea what's going to happen, you know, and then, and there's, that's a, that's a large skill, but it is interesting because you could contrast it with, and I think we, we're planning to get to one of them, but like, you know, like these movies, I'm a big fan of Maurice Pialat's movies. And, and in those ones, he's not even using professional actors or like the battle of Algiers. They're not professional actors. What, what, even if you rehearse them to death, they do something totally fucking different, you know? And then what is what goes on there? They're amazing movies, though. When you see it, it's a kind. That's also a kind of heavy duty realism shows up there. Well, know? the 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 common thread between great actors and non actors is that neither one of them is acting. There's that one note as a film director you find yourself giving all the time, and you have to find a nicer way to put it. But it's really no more important note to give an actor than to stop acting. Uh huh. Right. <laughs> when you give them a note. Well, you have to figure out how to do it. So you don't <laughs> want to say, you're making a mistake or you're doing this wrong. You must always give an adjustment. And actors always make what they call choices. Uh, and so you have to make them choose something. You can't uh, make their choices for them. But so great actors do it, whether they do it through great practice, like, you know, the sort of uh, outside-in approach of, like, the grand tradition of thespian Shakespearean acting, where it's all based on the text. And they build a character on that. Or the other approach from the last 100, you know, 100 to 150 years where characters build, take a character and a script and they build an emotional reality for them. The 90% of the iceberg that's not going to be there. Mm-hmm. And then they just make everything that's in the script symptomatic of their, they make their behavior symptomatic of their psychology. And the psychology is personal. And then they keep secrets and then they share what they can. And so that's that's the breadth of life that I think 
mm-hmm. what we call method acting does. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that Gallo, who took to it pretty well, you could tell he, he uh, reluctantly did the rehearsals, but I think he creates a character that's, you know, it's right in the Gallo wheelhouse. He's, he plays characters of tremendous um, ego, I mean, in a complimentary way, but he's somebody who commands the screen. Uh, and as a kind of like, he's a frustrating character, he's dismissive and he's arrogant, which are all things that are in common with him and um, his great film, Buffalo 66. Like he's playing a great Vincent Gallo character. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, but you believe him. And so you're like, oh, it's so we're so lucky that it wasn't, you know, Matt Dillon or maybe it could have been Nicolas Cage or it could have been anybody else that played that part. Um, and they're all great actors, but you, you'll you never forget Vincent Gallo in the movie. He's one of the most distinctive actors I can think of who's working today. Yeah, I think that's definitely clear from that. Let's talk about some other things, just a couple of other, like, other things I get questions about, which is it's very interesting the way that it's suddenly okay for Vincent Gallo to come to get to end up in the transformation as being the father. And you don't really see exactly what, what makes that all right. You know, they have a nice little, they have a great orgy scene in the, in in the hotel. He disappears. And then when he comes back, he's walking around with an ax and is going to deliver the big information in the middle, in the middle, in the middle of the play, which is kind of, you know, very, I don't know what it is. It's a Hamlet type moment. The play is going on. Right. And I mean, a spoof on it. It's great. Yeah. It's in the sort of campy, <laughs> very campy Shakespeare. Well, so now we, here. so at this point, we have to just say that we're about to reveal the big spoiler of the movie. Yeah. Which is Sorry, that. I just did, yes. Yeah, but still people are like, wait, what did he just say? Yeah. So if you haven't seen the film, it's important to know uh, that the reason the Tetro keeps Benny at a distance is because they're not brothers. He's, uh, he's Benny's father. And uh, it's because Tetro's father took his girlfriend. An unbelievably horrible, right? yeah. I mean, talk about the knife twist in there. It's just like... You know. So you understand why he doesn't trust anybody, anybody? <laughs> let alone some, you know what I mean? Yeah. So this guy isn't going to trust his brother or his father or his son or probably a woman as well. He's just got every complex in the book. Do you do you trust uh, Tetro's claim that he's Benny's father? Yes. Yeah. I um, always have. I, I'm uh, not sure. Then tell me why. Because the, the father, he, uh, here's me, all right? I'm not the expert, but here's me. The energy source of the film is Carlo Tetracini, the father, the, the, the uh, Brandau character. The patriot. Right? Who's very little there. But he's, his, the fact that he's pretty evil is the beginning of the energy. That's what drives Vincent Gallo crazy. That's why Benny doesn't know what's going on because he sends him away. That's why the um, uh, Vincent Gallo's girlfriend die, is in a coma from an overdose. It's all because of him. So you can't trust anything he says. So he seduced the girlfriend. So who's the real father of Benny? The, the Brandauer or Gallo? You sort of can't trust what either of them say, right? Because the, the, the Carlo Tetracini, Brandauer's character, is paying off Benny to go away. Benny's getting paid off because he wants to go away, right? So what's going on? Nothing's true. When you get back to the center, the energy center, which is Brandauer's character, nothing's true anymore. All right, this is the Trump of movies up there. There's I know no truth. about to come up. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> That's why I don't trust it. I think well, it's ambiguous. I think at the end, Benny doesn't know who his father is. Is this the part where you tell Jonathan he's actually your kid brother? <laughs> that would be an idea. <laughs> Sweeps week on this podcast. I, I've had to wrestle with that one in a very funny way. Elsewhere, so I could tell you about that another time. But, uh, but actually, I think maybe you might. I, I love that your theory is that far out, but I think it was kind of corroborated in the, in, in the, in the, in the just in the post-funeral scene right after, right after they had, they were all sitting there with the casket and they go in and the, the brother, he gives uh, the brother the baton mm-hmm. and then the brother snaps the baton mm-hmm. and he's going a little nuts and, and he says that you didn't, that this wasn't told. And then, and then the wife of the brother stands up and says we did that because yes but she doesn't know she only knows what Brandauer's character told her uh, she has no she has no independent information that's true but why would why would she have I mean that information why would Tetracini have told her that he, that he wasn't the father 
because of the reason he does anything. He's a, he's a totally dishonest character. Mm-hmm. He could spin he could spin it around. He you know he can he can be a good guy. He can say it's really uh, Petro's son. It's really Angelo's son. But I'll take care of him as if it's mine because he's not capable of. So when in fact it could be his own son all the time, right? Why he does things is a mystery. He does all sorts of things for no discernible reason except the cause. And you think his girlfriend would have put up with this even in the last scene? I think uh, maybe. I'm I mean, sure I like she was still alive. No, no, no. She wasn't. She I mean, died. she was alive. I didn't mean that she girlfriend. Was alive. I meant Gall- I meant Vincent Gallo's girlfriend. But no, no, I'm just throwing that out what there. What did but, she know about it? You mean Maribel Verdun? Yeah. What did she know about it? She didn't, she didn't know, know about, about that to the end. Till the end. Okay. But um, okay, so I like that. Okay, so we have we have we have one. He believes Gallo is the father. You believe that Gallo is not the father, and uh, I believe it's stained. ambiguous. I think I think it ends with nobody knows. I think that. I mean, I certainly think the film is open to interpretation, and so I think it's one of those films that leaves you with something to think about. All three of those later movies of his do, whereas he can't say that about John Grisham's The Rainmaker. No, no. You know what I mean? Which is much more of a, you know, the movies that, one of those movies that you leave and you're like, well. Um, How about that funeral scene? It was amazing. <laughs> it was so crazy. Like, over the top funeral scene with the, with the orchestra playing and the casket. And the, the so we can't, <laughs> we can't be done with this like movie. like a basket. We have to talk about the music. So, yes, uh, we do. what do you know about this composer? Well, Golachov is a great, he's a great composer and he's written a lot of pieces. Uh, you know, I, I first came across Golachov in a, in a way that I wish it was, I wish I'd come across it differently, but why not? Golachov did a bunch of stuff with David Krakauer. Uh, you know, he's got some pieces that, that Krakauer plays as his regular repertoire that he wrote for Krakauer and the, and the Kronos Quartet and stuff. And so I came to Golachov around that way. Um, he had, other people like Porin, this, this, the, you remember you, you showed me that is he plays his stuff. But Golachov is just a great, he's a really, really good classical composer. But I, you know, I, I didn't know. I've heard string quartets by him. I've heard mostly. Uh, you know, it's it's he's weird though. I mean, it's very, it's very, uh, it's got an odd sort of romantic throwback side. But he writes in it. But he can do very modern stuff. I mean, and what do you think about his work in this movie? I really liked it. You know, I really did like it. I mean, I think I think the movie. I, I like it. See, th- what I like is that much like Woman in the Dunes, the mu- the music isn't isn't invisible, right? I think people overdo, or at least it's a common thing in Hollywood movies and in movies to say, well, the music should be invisible. You shouldn't really notice that it's there, and it shouldn't be good. And it's as if you're supposed to be like afterwards, you're supposed to go out and you know get a soundtrack record and check out how good it was but you didn't really notice when it was there so that's definitely a thing that people aspire to in movies but I think in this case that that wasn't the case and that the, the music that was going on was really pretty beautiful all the time uh, and very descriptive you know but 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 without being overly uh, it wasn't like they went over the top with let's just tango this to hell you know which they could have done, you know. I think I think that can be a problem in, in some movies. Like if you just if you folk source the, you know, folk 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 source the thing to hell, then you then you lose a lot of expressive, uh, uh, you lose a lot of expressive qualities that come in, in having other kind of composed music. So the surround of that was really good. There wasn't a, so having music that was that would be overtly Argentinian would be sort of on the nose. Yeah, it's it right. becomes hokey. I mean, it's something that people do. You always have to. I think you. I think. I think every film composer has to make a decision if they're doing a thing that is definitely in a place. How much of that are you going to stick in there? Because at a certain point, it loses its expressivity. It just does. You're going to. I mean, let's like coming here and only shooting the entire mood of New Orleans to, through a brass band, and we know people have done that. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? It's like a brass band is one particular, gives you one particular flavor. Uh, and it's right it's down the middle. Flavor. Listen, my favorite tango score for a movie is um, Waking Life. I don't know. Right? Where he got a tango, an Argentinian tango band from Austin, Texas. For a, movie, <laughs> for a surrealist animated movie yeah. about Dream Life. I was okay. like, oh, now that's good because it doesn't at all, you notice it. You're like, that's a very interesting choice. Um, I think that basically, because this is a movie that's, about Benny by himself is that the first half hour of the movie is so extraordinarily like the music illustrates his life and his experiences. Yeah. So there's a lot of room for the music. And you think just like we were talking about with rehearsals and camera tests, 
you're just confident that the director and composer got together and considered all of the ways they yeah, all they before they settled on this one. Yeah, but there's just room for music to participate. Yeah. Isn't there a centrality of music because? Brandauer's character is a conductor. Yeah. They are music. It's a musical, musical, you know, start. The sort of source of everything is that he's the maestro. I I think this was great because it meant that they could have a very wide, you see the variety of music in there was very wide right away. You can have, you have to have the most dramatic, dark, orchestral, huge orchestral, expansive moments because that relates to both the drama that's going on in Vincent Gallo's head, the oversized composer who's an asshole, but who conducts large orchestras. But then we're also in a little, a little villagey section of Buenos Aires with, with that. So right away you have like, I, I love this in a, in a soundtrack. You have an, you have a vast gulf there between one instrument playing. Golachov writes very well for clarinet. There was a bunch of clarinet in there. That's that's kind of beautiful, but the, 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 you know, you can have that much variety in a soundtrack because of that. And, you know, some soundtracks are, are not, you know, I mean. Henry, you're, you're doing the biography and you haven't mentioned that Francis Coppola's father is a composer. Well, of course. Now, Jonathan made clear name beginning. Carlo, not Car- named Carmine, not Carlo, but first half is the same. Well, Jonathan didn't want to start with that. So yes, in fact, Coppola comes from a multi-generational arts family. His father, Carmen Coppola, is a famous composer. Uh, Coppola had a brother named August Coppola, who's the father of Nicolas Cage, who he worked with through much of his life. Uh, I, here's an odd piece of trivia. Coppola's undergraduate degree is from Hofstra, and then he went to graduate school at UCLA, his brother August undergrad at UCLA, grad school at Hofstra. Mm. So, like, they were very close to each other, and they worked, uh, his brother worked in American Zoetrope all through the 70s and 80s, and was instrumental in the restoration of Napoleon, Abel Gantz's film, but that had a score by Carmine Coppola, their father, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> Coppola has sort of enacted his family again and again through his movies. Um, but I do think, it's like the quote we started with, none of it happened, but all of it's true. Uh, you, I think he was exploring familial relationships. I'm sure he got along with his brother much better than the brothers in this movie. No, oh, yeah, yeah. He said that. He mentioned that in one of the interview, one of the interview yeah. segments. That, yeah. But I think he had, he has access to those yeah. feelings and those struggles. He said he said he had access to them, but he says he said he said, "Well, my family was very tight. We got along. <laughs> you know, it wasn't that bad." And uh, but you know, but it, there's the, there's that, and you always everyone always leaves out also how much a musician Walter Murch is, which is a real really really important and you know but everyone talks about Mercer who wrote one of my favorite books in arts too which is Blink of the Eye book but it's you know and he often says though he he likes to he and people get it don't get the context of his line right in a lot of ways but because he said that he likes to cut without any sound at all no, none of the voices, none of that. But the thing is, it's followed. This is misunderstood exactly. That. He says, "I want to get it to do to be musical without any sound there, then any sound there." Well, that's an incredible thing because we added that line, which most people take out of context and you start cutting. But they're not trying to make it musical right. before before it shows up. This has been so they're very yeah, they're very sophisticated musical thinkers all around. On his I sort of want to tailslate your remark in case anybody who's listening doesn't know who Walter Murch is. Walter Murch is a famous film editor whose uh, work, particularly in post-production sound, uh, changed the industry. He was the first person, I think, who took the title of sound supervisor, someone who was sort of like a director of photography for the audio of the film. Uh, Unlike in cinematography, cinematography can be very creative when you're doing it, and then the post-production of it can also be pretty wild, the way you would saturate the colors or things like that, whereas audio recording on set is not a particularly creative act. But the making of a soundscape of a movie can be very creative. And so that's certainly true of movies like, you know, Citizen Kane is a very creative soundtrack. But what, what Merch did in movies like The Conversation, which was designed for his skills in Apocalypse Now, changed the way people approached sound. And so he wrote the book on editing that every film editor reads in the blink of an eye, in which he has all sorts of interesting ideas about how and why to cut. Yes. But I, I advise that. I, I recommend that book to any artist. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's an incredible hundred page thing on how to think through you know, how you should be dealing with 
any 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 artistic problem that you come across. And he's also, you know, part of that San Francisco group. There's a great documentary about them called Fog City Mavericks about all the filmmakers who were based in Northern California instead of Southern California, like mm -hmm. Lucas and Coppola, mm -hmm. who sort of made that their area. And so Merch, who's written extensively about film, has been involved in restoration, lots of other things. So his uh, imprimatur on the film is also pretty distinctive. So there you go. Every hand in this movie is a really distinctive person with a very yeah. advanced skill. I, uh, I, I think maybe my final remark would be, uh, I was, there's two things I wanted to say. One, the, Coppola's career is kind of proof that what it is that drives an artist is not necessarily the thing that they're going to be most successful at. You know, yeah. Coppola didn't want to do The Godfather, and he was really pushed into doing it. There were a lot of reasons he was against that. He really wanted to make, his dream project was One from the Heart, which is a musical that I would love to talk about sometime, okay. that uh, that bankrupted his company, American Zoetrope, and was really a film that never found its audience, although La La Land should send it a fruit basket. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, and Scorsese didn't want to make Raging Bull. He did want to make New York, New York. Yeah. Right? So they their dream projects are not the things for which they're considered successful, but their applied talent, like what they would be best at, yeah. might be something, might be somebody else's idea. And so that, it, it led me to Manny Farber, a famous film critic, whose probably single most uh, memorable theory is about termite art versus white elephant art. He talks about two kinds of artists, right? And he says that white elephant artists are people who are trying to make something profound. They're intending to make an artistic masterpiece. He doesn't think much of it compared to, say, termites, who do what they do without thinking much about what their goal is. So people like Elmore Leonard or Woody Allen or, you know, really prolific people who just crank it out again and again and they don't think too much, you know, uh, about why they're doing what they're doing. They're just putting one foot in front of the other. And it's up to somebody else to determine whether it was an enormous artistic success. Uh, so what it means is that someone who's trying to make something experimental or artistic or try and do something in a new original way and is conscious of trying to do that is uh, to be suspected. And I think that Coppola succeeds. He's only making films for himself and he's very consciously trying to make a movie that's different. And he's, I don't want to say he's comfortable with failing, but he's much more willing to do that than almost any other filmmaker because he's at that rare point that filmmakers very rarely get to where he's not enormously worried about whether the films are financially successful or not. Great if they are, but he, you know, my last interesting Coppola quote for the day, he said, uh, uh, not taking risks in art is like not having sex and expecting children. Mm -hmm, that's good. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he's only interested in making a movie if it's never been done and he doesn't know how to do it. Yeah, which is great. That's what he said. He, needs to do, he said a smaller smaller film has bigger ideas. He's great, a lot of great Exactly. And so when a movie like Tetra, which really has a high degree of difficulty, could have been, uh, could have been a mess, could have been convoluted, yeah. could have been confusing, could have been, you know, it just could have been really like scattered. But the fact that it comes together the way that it does is like magic, which is sort of the subject of the movie. I mean, nobody makes a souffle by accident. Yeah. <laughs> so I think the fact that this movie really does rise is a, is a testament not only to the source material or his biography or the performances, but I think to his technique of how he goes about making a film in a way that sort of nurtures everyone. Yeah. And then orchestrates yeah. it all. Yeah. And it